You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Electoral College voted today, solidifying Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election. Biden has 306 electoral votes to President Trump's 232. So will this end President Trump's lawsuits using baseless claims of voter fraud to try to overturn the election? Lawsuits which have been rejected by the Supreme Court unanimously. The latest on Friday when the court rejected calls by Trump, Texas and 17 other GOP-controlled states plus 126 House Republican lawmakers to reverse the election results. My guest is elections law expert Derek Muller, a professor at the University of Iowa Law School. Derek, Texas was trying to invoke the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. Explain the basis for the lawsuit. Yeah, so Texas sued Pennsylvania and a few other states alleging uh, improprieties in those other states' elections. And the Constitution sets up that the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular are open to controversies involving two or more states. And so when states sue one another, they typically sue directly in the United States Supreme Court. And it's usually about things like water rights or land boundary disputes, things like that. But occasionally they, they filed disputes about different kinds of controversies. A few years ago, for instance, Nebraska sued Colorado over its marijuana laws. But for the most part, the Supreme Court has recognized that it has the discretion to decline jurisdiction in these cases. So the heart of the controversy that Texas had was alleging that the state legislatures were not sort of in control of their election processes in these states that it violated equal protection of some of the voters in these states and so on. Uh, but the court pretty summarily just dismissed this claim, saying we're not going to hear it and we declined to hear it. Texas has not shown that it's been injured in any way by what, what other states do in their election. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Leto said that they would have let Texas file the suit. Did they model the message with what they said? <laughs> So I don't think so. I mean, I think sometimes people might try to read into it. But Justices Thomas and Alito have for a long time had this view of it's a provision of law 1251A, which pertains to the court's original jurisdiction, jurisdiction here, controversy involving multiple states. And in a couple of previous cases, both justices have said, look, we don't think the court has the discretion to decline these cases. So consistent with that, they said, listen, I don't think we can decline allowing Texas to file the complaint. So this is really sort of a kind of a wonky dispute about whether or not the court has the power to decline to even hear this case in the first place. 
But the justices went on to say, right, well, I would not grant other relief. I would not grant Texas's request for a stay of what's happening in the states. I would not grant the request for a preliminary injunction preventing the states from issuing orders pertaining to their electors, having their electors meeting, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, so they sort of agreed with the outcome of the court. The only difference is they would have been open to Texas at least filing the complaint, and then who knows what happens after that. Some people are reading a lot into this decision by the Supreme (laughs) Court. They're saying, you know, this is sending a message that we're not engaging in partisan politics. We just look at the law. Is that carrying it too far? No, I mean, I think it's right to say that the the court is not acting in an overtly partisan fashion here. And I think it's very easy to say that, you know, Texas didn't have standing to, to bring this challenge. And you can think, I mean, think back to some, some other great presidential contest. I mean, what, what would have been the reaction if New York sued in the Supreme Court in Florida, uh, against Florida in 2000, saying, hey, Florida's electors, you know, they, they, they've been engaged in some shenanigans and how they're participating in this recount, right? I mean, it, it would just, it would make no sense to us. And that's because the presidential election is designedly decentralized. Each state does what it wants with its own electors. They choose the mode of appointment. They choose the manner of how they're going to conduct the election. And while you might have some sort of disputes within your state, there's really no uh, contest for other states or grounds for them to challenge what you're doing in your state on this matter. Um, so in that respect, I think it's something that, that justices across the political spectrum agree with. And this was really, uh, you know, less a legal case and more sort of a political statement that was, uh, you know, attempted to be raised by Texas. So I think there's no surprise that the, the court was, was pretty, pretty unanimous and, and pretty terse in its, in its take. So they were terse. Should they have written a longer opinion and in no uncertain terms, you know, upheld the validity of the election and chided the president for his attempts to undermine democracy or the rule of law? I don't know. I mean, that's just if you wrestle with the pig, you're just going to get dirty. Right. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if they really needed to weigh in much more. I was a little surprised they actually weighed in as much as they did. I was a little surprised that they didn't just say it's denied. With well, you know, they explained that Texas lacked standing, so that was actually more than I anticipated they might otherwise do. Right? The court often doesn't feel compelled to inject itself in these disputes. Last week, um, there was a dispute arising out of Pennsylvania that you know that was on cert or on an injunction filed before the court, an emergency injunction, where the court just denied it with no explanation, which is common for these disputes. Understandably, it's a, it's a big case, right? It involves the president and involves several states suing each other. And then a lot of amicus briefs coming in from a lot of different parties interested about it. But at the same time, the court is, by saying so little, you know, emphasizing this is really something that is not our job. It's not our job to sort out your controversies, either in the political process or in how states typically run their elections. So go back to the ordinary means of litigation, the ordinary means of political struggle, and we're not going to get involved. And in that respect, I think it's in some ways good that <laughs> the court didn't feel the need to expound more broadly. Electoral college members in all six battleground states where President Trump most fiercely contested the results cast their ballots for Democrat Joe Biden, effectively cutting off the president's path to overturning the election. Now, the president... In a series of tweets and on Fox yesterday, vowed to continue the fight. It's not over, he said. Is it over? (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends on your definition of the word over. I mean, in some senses, it's been over for a long time. And in other senses, it won't be over for some time. Right. Um, I think there's no question that as of at least a couple days after the uh, after Election Day, 
um, it was pretty obvious that, that Joe Biden had a, a substantial majority of electoral votes and that there was no sort of material legal reason why um, any of the results in these states uh, would change. And sure enough, that, I mean, if, if you looked at the map on November 6th and sort of the level of certainty we had, it's been essentially unchanged today and should be essentially unchanged through Inauguration Day. Um, at the same time, we say, is it over? You know, the question is, are there more avenues to fight? Are there more lawsuits to be filed? There's uh, a case out of Wisconsin before the Seventh Circuit. There are cases with certiorari pending before the Supreme Court right now, right? But but all these things are going to start to feel, you know, even sillier than they do right now as the Electoral College convenes, as it sends those votes to Congress. Um, and so undoubtedly, I think they'll be fighting. I think there'll be political struggle. I think there'll be lots of fundraising emails, undoubtedly. Uh, but in terms of it being over, uh, in terms of the, the certainty we have that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States, I feel pretty, pretty confident that it's over in that sense. The Electoral College meets today, and usually that's something that doesn't get much attention, if any attention. <laughs> what actually happens today? Sure. So, yeah, in the so when we vote for the president on November 3rd, we're voting actually for slates of electors and each state has between three and 55 electors that they uh, that they have allocated to them based on their Senate and, rep- and House representation. And they typically are party loyalists, party faithful um, in New York. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton are two of the, of the presidential electors. Stacey Abrams is an elector in Georgia. Um, and what they do is they just show up today, uh, typically in the state capitol, um, and they cast their votes in a fairly formal ceremony. They cast a vote for the president on a ballot. They cast a vote for a vice president on a separate ballot. Um, they submit those. They list out their votes. They sign them. And then they send the certificates on to Congress for Congress to count. Um, so it got the, you know, the, these meetings got a little bit more attention four years ago when there were a lot of electors who were attempting to uh, keep Donald Trump out of the White House. Uh, now they're, they're sort of in a different direction. <laughs> now that now it's the Trump campaign, the shoes on the other foot, trying to figure out how to challenge these electors. Um, but but for the most part, we should expect very few surprises. You know, a little social distancing and masking, um, but otherwise they'll engage in largely a formal task today. There have been rumblings that there may be a challenge by Trump allies when Congress meets to tally the electoral votes from each state. How would that unfold? Yeah, Congress meets January 6th to count electoral votes. And that's typically a pretty formalistic act, again, that they read the certificates one by one that come from the states in alphabetical order, a meeting that doesn't last more than an hour, where they run through the list, they have all the electors, and they they have a total at the end of the day, and Congress has counted the votes. But there has been some discussion about some individuals in Congress objecting in this process. And, And the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is the mechanism that Congress would use today. It requires a senator and a member of the House to object in writing. And they state their objection to a given slate of electors or an electoral vote. And if, if you file that objection, then there is a uh, opportunity for the houses to separate. They spend two hours in debate. They vote on the motion and they reconvene back together. This is pretty rare that you have these kinds of debates that happen twice. Once in 1969 with a faithless elector from North Carolina and once in 2005 challenging Ohio's electoral votes. You know, there was a written objection. The the houses separated for two hours. They had debate, but the objection was not upheld. They essentially wasted two hours and came back and then they continued on with the count. So 
there is that formal process. But again, I don't anticipate that even if there's an objection in Congress and some fights about how to count these electors, that would really change the outcome. I think all the electoral votes will be counted. There are still Republican senators who haven't acknowledged that Joe Biden won the presidency. Is there any way the Senate could stop the certification somehow? It requires both houses to agree to an objection in order to sustain it. So you start with that. So if uh, Arizona's electoral votes come out and someone objects, the Democratic-controlled House, it's going to be a narrow Democratic majority, but still, I think the Democratic-controlled House will deny any such objection. So that's the first problem. But on top of that, I think you have a core of senators and Republicans. It's essentially a split Senate at the moment. And you've got a core of Republican senators like Senators Collins, Murkowski, Romney, Sass, I think, who would not sort of go along with such shenanigans, if you will. So I would be surprised to see a majority of the Senate sustain one of those objections. But even then, you have the failsafe that you need both houses to agree to an objection. So at that point, it is actually impossible for Trump to overturn the election results. Right. So once once uh, those votes are counted, um, you know, they're counted. <laughs> and that is what we use to determine the next president of the United States, who will be uh, sworn in on January 20th, whom the chief justice of the Supreme Court comes, you know, down to, to, to take that oath of office on no- at noon on that day. So, yeah. So I think at, at that point, there's really nothing left. You know, that's uh, it is that is about the last stop on the train, the, the, the last formal stop at least on the train as we think about this process playing out. You had these thousands of people in in Washington over the weekend and speeches Mm -hmm. about stop the steal. Is it possible to sort of quantify how much damage President Trump's continuation of this assault on the election and declaration that it's rigged, how much effect that has had on the whole process and Americans' belief in the process. I want to give a little history first, and it's not its not to make false equivalency because I, I want to explain also why it's different now, right? I mean, we have seen a lot of frustration, especially over the last 20 years of presidential elections from um, Florida was stolen by the Supreme Court in 2002. It was diebold voting machines in Ohio that hacked the election for Bush in 2004 to um, Barack Obama was secretly born in Kenya and is an illegitimate president in 2008. So Russia hacked voting machines in 2016 and installed Donald Trump yielding marches on Washington in, in November and January. And, um, you know, every four years or eight years, it's been this sort of increasing rhetoric of undermine the legitimacy of the outcome. Now, Donald Trump, I think, is, has elevated it even a step further in that he is the president of the United States advocating for these things. Right? And the last uh, last time it was sort of maybe marginal groups or politicians that would advocate for it. At least that, at least the losing candidate would concede defeat. Um, it's much harder when the candidate has not conceded defeat. So with that, we'll see. We'll, we, you know, what will the next four years yield? Will it be a lot of sort of fundraising off this rage that just leads to a different kind of political movement? Is it uh, something that's really going to result in a crisis in the confidence of our democratic process. Or, you know, maybe if a Republican wins in four years that suddenly the shoe's on the other foot and everyone feels confident on the right and, and uh, you know, uh, there's a lack of confidence on the left. I, I just don't know. Um, I know it's not a good thing, <laughs> but, but sort of measuring the, the degree to which it's damaging is a harder thing to assess. Finally, is there anything that can be done? I mean, anything 
concretely that can be done to restore the public's trust in elections, <clears throat> excuse me, in the elections and election process? Yeah, so I don't know. You know, I think in the past there have been attempts at sort of bipartisan commissions. Um, you know, this happened. There were some efforts, especially after the election in 2000, uh, with the Help America Vote Act of 2002 to update voting equipment in the states, to send them more money, to ensure an increased confidence in them. Uh, at more uh, a formal level in the political sense, after 2016, and there were, there were some, you know, foreign interference concerns, uh, you know, in voter registration databases uh, that were, you know, breached and the like, you know, nothing that affected the outcome of the elections. Um, states increasingly began to trust the Department of Homeland Security and federal agencies in, in collaborating with them and, and, and recognizing that they were going to be helpful actors, and I think yielded a very strong uh, and secure election in 2020. Um, so I think as we move forward, we're, we're looking at concerns about, you know, whether it's, it's ballot signatures or whether it's uh, Dominion voting machines or other kinds of things. And some of this, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would hope that people could realize that we have a lot of safeguards in place. We have a lot of really competent election officials. We have paper trails in just about every race in the country. So there's no sort of a hidden electronic switching of stuff. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's a very hard thing to sort of uh, pass on mass, right? It's, it's undoubtedly the case that, that a, a, a small myth can turn into a very large myth very quickly, and restoring confidence after that is, uh, is a long, slow process. So um, maybe there will be some efforts at sort of a national level or uh, to, to, to instill some faith in the democratic process. But I don't know. I think that's, that's just a, a tough way to look at, at how things will, will come in the future. Thanks, Derek. That's Derek Muller, professor at the University of Iowa Law School. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Several executives at some pharmaceutical companies sold their stock around the time their companies announced positive news about COVID-19 vaccines, resulting in staggering profits. In a study, Columbia Law School professor Joshua Mitz analyzed more than 12 million transactions and found that such sales occur more frequently in the healthcare industry than other sectors. And he joins me now. Why did you decide to do this study? I have really, over the last couple of years, been working on a series of projects on coincidentally timed trading, um, trading in situations which raise questions. And uh, when I read the story of Pfizer CEO Bourla cashing out 60% or so of his portfolio on the day that Pfizer had announced its phase three trial results, I thought, you know, this is really a setting which hasn't been explored. And that is specifically the coincidence between insider trading plans uh, that are uh, at least claimed to be predetermined and the release of good news. And really it was the question, how could a plan that is supposedly predetermined lead to 
such strange coincidences like these where you have a major announcement and not just the liquidation of a few shares, but 60% of the portfolio. And uh, from there, I started digging into the data more generally to see if this is a pattern. And lo and behold, it is. Is this true across all industries, all sectors, or do you find it more in one sector? It definitely happens across the board, but it's much more concentrated, you could say, in the healthcare sector. In the paper, in the project, I do a comparison across industries, and we see this sort of coincidental, we'll call it coincidental timing, we see this sort of coincidental timing most pronounced in the healthcare sector. And I think one reason for that, and I'm somewhat speculating here, but I think biotech and medical device companies and pharmaceutical companies, the value of these companies is so tightly linked to positive news announcements like clinical trial results that it makes sense for executives to structure their compensation packages to cash out upon these sorts of announcements. And that's less compelling or or less needed in other industries where your stock price is not necessarily going to react as much as it does in healthcare. So Pfizer, not only did the CEO sell the majority of his stock in one day, 60% on the same day the company announced the results of the COVID-19 vaccine trial, but another Pfizer executive also sold shares that same day. And what happened there seems dwarfed by what happened at Moderna. Tell us about that. So in the project, what I'm mainly doing is looking across the data as a whole. Um, I do talk about these examples really just to illustrate the broader phenomenon. In the case of Moderna, there's really a bunch of different things going on. So you have some executives who are cashing out on a regular basis, and I think that may be less suspicious. But then you have others, particularly, I don't want to give any names, but you know, there's, there's a, at least one director who hadn't traded at all from May to July, and then there was this big trade showing up in July on the very same day that, that Moderna had made its, its, its announcement. So this happens, you know, it happens across the board. It happens in differing intensities. And I guess one way to think about it is, you know, it's one thing if executives are being transparent about the nature of their trading. So the problem that I focus on in the paper is not the fact that they're cashing out. We generally think that's okay. And, you know, if they were making regular sales, as indeed a couple of the Moderna executives seem to have been doing, I probably would find that less troublesome. But what's particularly troublesome is structuring the nature of your disclosure and your plan so that on the moment you make a positive announcement, like your clinical trial results, some members of your executive team or your, or your directors or other officers have what are called triggers in place to cash out. And this is what seems to be going on based on the data. And I say seems to be because, because both in case of Pfizer and in Moderna, and when we look more broadly, we really have no idea. And that's something that the public, I think, often doesn't understand. We're not given any details as to what triggers these these stock sales. We're basically putting it together in hindsight, observing these patterns and scratching our heads going, oh, it must be the case 
that they've done something behind the scenes, but we don't really know what that something is. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is that we see these patterns, these patterns that can be ultimately very harmful to investors who purchase without realizing that executives are selling. And we have no idea that these plans are in place leading to this sort of uh, coincidental timing. The company's response to these trades is often, well, these were all planned beforehand. They're done according to the 10B51 plans. Explain what the 10B51 plan is. So the 10B51 plan is a rule that the SEC put out, which basically says if you pre-commit to a strategy to sell your stock, we will uh, deem you not have been trading on the basis of material non-public information, which is kind of a, a golden uh, uh, ticket, so to speak, to, uh, to, to, to immunity from insider trading liability. So if you're a corporate executive, you're very concerned that your stock sales could be construed as occurring uh, on the basis of some non-public information that you have. And you, you're, you, know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're facing liability. So what, what insiders will do is they will, they will uh, often contract with specialized providers. Sometimes this is wealth, man- these are wealth management firms who will, uh, who will set up these plans. Now, what I think folks don't really appreciate who, who, who kind of talk about this casually, here I'm including you know, the public relations uh, arms of some of these companies and also in a lot of casual commentary is that the, the 10B51 plans can include very sophisticated what are what I call price triggers. And what this means is that you can actually put in your 10B51 plan that if the stock price jumps by a particular amount and if other conditions are satisfied, go ahead and sell a lot of stock. And why this is troublesome is that the more you, the more you customize, the more you, you know, custom tailor your, uh, uh, your algorithm. And actually the, the, the rule uses the word, the phrase computer program. The more you set up a computer program, uh, that, that, that's sensitive to something like a price increase, the more dangerous that sort of trading is for the average investor. And that's because the, a purchaser who's seeing the stock price go up, and buying stock is not told contemporaneously that the executive's trigger might have been activated. And so, so the average buyer has no idea that they might be buying while the CEO is selling 60% of their portfolio. And that can be, that is totally consistent with the 10B51 rule, but it may nonetheless serve to defraud and to take advantage of and deceive the average investor because they're left completely in the dark that the plan is being used in this way. So these plans are more than just saying, sell my stock when it reaches this level. One of the, uh, I think, misconceptions is that people think the plan kicks in on certain days. I think most people would say that if you would ask them what is 75 one they would say, well, it means that an executive every month sells a particular quantity of shares. Now, the fact that some of those may be tied to the price reaching a certain level is, um, is, is itself unknown, I think, by, except to you know a, a, a small group of folks who, who 
who specialize in this area. It's not widely discussed in those terms. What I think is even less uh, visible is the fact that these plans can be structured with even more sophistication such that it could not just be when the price necessarily reaches a level, but when the price increases by a certain amount uh, or, or when there's a certain uh, uh, level of trading volume. And so now the reason why those details really matter is because what I document in my paper is that on these days where the price jumps and the sales kick in, the stock price is just at a temporary, transitory, ephemeral level. And so when you say, well, the stock, you know, they're just selling stock when it reaches a certain level, you might think, well, that's just a reward for hitting that level. But what I show in the data is that that's a very short-lived price peak. And so what's happening is the price uh, on average in the data, we see this, falls uh, often, you know, 10, 20 more percent, sometimes even as much as 30 percent, depending on which which cases you're looking at. And, and that price decline is, in fact, the very harmful to the average investor. Because the average investor buys not aware that the executive trigger has kicked in, not aware that the executive has engineered the plan in such a way as to dump shares at this moment, and not aware that they just bought a stock that's about to go down 30% in value. Now, you say transparency. Is any transparency required by the SEC? The SEC is often notified or can be notified upon request. So the SEC has the capacity to request in a non-public manner the details of these plans. But the SEC does not require any public disclosure of the plan. Companies will, will often voluntarily uh, tag their their trading disclosures. So insiders have to make trading disclosures, but those don't come around for about 24 to 48 hours after the trades have taken place. Companies will sometimes add a footnote to those trading disclosures saying, okay, this was made pursuant to a 10 one plan. Sometimes they'll say when that plan was adopted, but that's as far as it gets. You're not going to get any information about the nature of the plan, what triggers might be in place, how many more shares might be sold, when those shares might be sold. All of that is very material, very important to the average investor who's trying to make a decision, do I buy this stock? And, and you know, the lack of transparency beyond the mere fact that there was an executive sale uh, is, is, is really quite harmful to the integrity of our markets. And I think contributes in large part to this sense among investors that the markets are, are, are the deck is kind of stacked against them, that the markets are an, are an un, uh, unequal, unfair pl- uh, playing field and t- tilted in favor of, of these insiders. So these 10B51 plans are designed to avoid allegations of insider trading, but the way the plans are being used, do they fit a definition of insider trading? That's a great question, and it's sort of a, a level of sophistication, because actually the answer is no. And this is another point that I think has slipped. There's a little bit of a, of a sleight of hand going on here, a little bit of a shell game, a little bit of a smokescreen. Um, and that is that in all of these cases, what we're talking about are sales that are, by definition, made after the disclosure of the information to the market. And this is a critical point, and I, I fault the financial press for not not 
hold, uh, taking these executives, I think, to you know, holding them accountable for this because the first question I would ask a corporate executive who's claiming a 10b51 plan as a defense to this is why do you even need Rule 10b51 at all? Um, after all, the information is public uh, prior to your trade. If it weren't, you wouldn't be profiting at, as much as you are. In, in fact, the whole idea here is that the information is already out, the price has already risen, and that's what makes the sale so profitable. So in a sense, uh, we're, the whole discussion of 10b51 and insider trading is really just a distraction. It's just a, uh, in fact, I'd go even further. I think that there is a tactic here of uh, distracting the SEC from what's really going on. I think there's a lot of people at the SEC who when they hear a 10b51 plan that, you know, that is a rule which provides immunity from insider trading liability. And so they just lift their hands up and say, that's it, we're done. <laughs> you know, this is, I think, I'm not saying I know this for, as a fact, but from talking to people in the industry, this is often how it works. There's an article like this, uh, like there was about, about Pfizer and the, com the company says 10b51 and the SEC staff, when they see 10b51, they go, okay, next let's move on to the next case. And I think, I think to your question, uh, your question is exactly right. This is a complete sleight of hand. There's no material non-public information in, in, in this story by, 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 by definition. The announcement has already been made. We shouldn't be talking about 10b51 at all. We should be talking about fraud. We should be talking about security fraud. We should be talking about whether the company is fulfilling its duty of loyalty, its duty of transparency that it has uh, a duty of honesty to, to speak uh, truthfully to the market. Uh, and, and, and there's the problem, right? The problem is you've gone out and told the market this good news. You know people are going to buy your stock as a result, but you haven't told them the secret trades that your executives are executing. That has nothing to do with insider trading. It's just straight-up deception. What do you think should be done? Should the SEC be prosecuting these cases? I think a couple, you know, a couple uh, recommendations here. Another one is, and part of what my project is trying to do is to reorient the conversation along the lines of your of your last question, which is let's stop think, talking about insider trading and thinking and start thinking about these cases as straight up deception cases. And and that's something the SEC and the Justice Department can do today with the tools that they have is to ask whether companies are being fully transparent when they disclose positive news about the, uh, the, the countervailing trading patterns of their corporate executives. That's something that, that uh, in, in my view, those sorts of questions can be asked today. Now, whether or not a case can be brought in any given circumstance is going to depend on the nature of the disclosure. It's going to depend on, uh, on what executives knew about their trading plans. It's going to depend on what, they, what the folks who are responsible for putting these good news announcements out uh, new. So there's a lot of questions, but, but investigations are the way you get the answers to those questions. And I think the SEC can immediately start looking into these cases under the standard uh, rubric of securities fraud using the tools that they have today. That being said, there may be situations where the evidence is not there as to intent uh, or, or, or we just want to ask ourselves, what might we do about this more generally? Uh, but, uh, beyond bringing individual enforcement actions or prosecutions. And, and in the paper, I propose I think what I think is a simple remedy, which is a, a, a clawback remedy. And the idea is 
you know, if executives cash out on good news while the stock price is increasing, they, I, I'm perfectly happy to let them keep their profits because they've created value for shareholders and they deserve to be compensated for that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a standard sort of function of a corporation to create value for its shareholders. Uh, if, in, though, on the other hand, they sold at a short-lived price peak where the price went up and then went down and you have potentially millions of dollars of investor losses where individuals, retail investors, institutions bought stock not knowing that the executive was cashing out at this transitorily high price, this short-lived peak, that's the time to give those profits back. And uh, this is not an unprecedented uh, uh, idea. We already have this sort of clawback in place for other kinds of concerning insider trading, uh, uh, using that term, that is to say trading activity by corporate insiders that may be legal, but nonetheless concerning under the what's called the short swing profit rule. So we already have this in the place for some kinds of insider trading. And in the paper, I propose uh, just broadening that to include these situations where a, uh, th th these insiders enjoy uh, profits at the expense of public uh, company shareholders who had no idea that this was happening and uh, end up losing because they're buying prior to the price declining. Thanks, Joshua. That's Joshua Mitz, a professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.